You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It is Thursday, February 4th, 2021. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ed Harrison, joined by the CIO of Muddy Waters Capital. Thank you very much, Carson Block. Thanks, Ed. Good to be here. So, uh, you know, you and I, we spoke yesterday. I I, I could talk to you for like hours about many different topics, I have to tell you. uh, but I want to start this out uh, sort of from a broad perspective, I, just as an introduction, Muddy Waters, you know, people know you because you're an activist, short seller. You're looking at financial frauds in particular. And in order to do that, I think, you know, the economic backdrop, the macro backdrop, I think, is important in, in certain aspects. That's why I want to start broad. And let me paint the picture for you and you. You can give me some pushback and tell me how you think about the, the the picture. This is how I'm thinking of it. You know, we're in the middle of a mania right now. You know, of uh, one of my colleagues was just telling me about GameStop down another 35% today. That's one of the, the loci of the mania. And the backdrop more broadly, even still, is, is that this is happening under, uh, a, a, you know, an atomization of media, an implosion of the traditional media, especially in terms of long-term, uh, long-form investigative side of things. So really, there's a vacuum that's being filled by social media. And a lot of people are just grabbing onto sound bites. Uh, we're reducing complexity in a situation where financialization has run amok and the complexity in the financial system has run amok. And that's all happening simultaneously as we're locked down. I'm talking to you from my basement uh, during a pandemic. So that, that's the macro backdrop that I see. And I look at that as one in which financial fraud can happen very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, there's I want to break down what we do into two different buckets. So there is from the legal perspective, fraud. So that's where a company has crossed the line and can be held liable for fraud. But then there's also this other bucket, which is actually more of what we do, which is intellectually fraudulent. It violates the spirit of the laws, but they stay generally within the letter of the law by stretching accounting standards, relying on safe harbor statements to exculpate them from liability. And I feel like that's actually a more insidious problem. Um, I mean, well, you get these frauds, especially these frauds from emerging markets that are almost total empty boxes. I mean, those are egregious in terms of reality versus what they want the perception to be. But I mean, when you look at this legal fraud, it's it's really symptomatic of a larger problem in our society that has existed but grown for decades, which I call it the tick the box apocalypse. So you can bend truth. You get enough lawyers in, you know, to create these checklists, you check them off, you know, enough papers, you've got plausible deniability and 
hey, you know, um, everything, you know, everything is done legally. And the reality is that with the where, with where market caps are now, um, it used to be that somebody, whether they were perpetrating an actual fraud or one of these intellectual frauds, I mean, they were really good if they could take 30 to $50 million off the table. You know, so I'm talking about something that maybe had a, you know, one billion to two billion market cap. I mean, the way things are now and the market caps and the liquidity, I mean, I think a lot of these guys are pulling down nine figures in these scams. It is so remunerative. And when we are talking about actual fraud, enforcement is just, it seems like it's overwhelmed. And when we're talking about this, just the intellectual fraud that violates the spirit of the law, but not the letter. I mean, it's just de rigor. You know, we short, I think some of the companies that we short in that category, you know, the CEO and other senior members of management are probably looking at each other and saying, well, why the fuck did he choose us? Like, what are we doing that these other guys aren't doing? And that's a valid point. Like everybody's doing it. Everybody is gilding the lily and exaggerating and nobody's presenting pure information to investors because if they do, they're going to be punished for it by the market. That that's a good point. And you know, we were kind of uh, dancing around this, talking to this as we were thinking about this uh, this interview yesterday. And the the analogy that I gave you is is when you're um, you know in a traffic jam on the highway, at some point you're just like, uh, you know, I kind of want to take the uh, the emergency lane. Uh, even though I know it's illegal and it's supposed to be for emergencies, but you don't do it because you're following the law. As soon as the first guy does it, someone who is right on the edge will say, you know what, screw it. This guy, he's getting, you know, he's getting a, a, a faster way. I'm going to take the fast way out, too. And before you know it, everyone and his brother is 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 uh, taking up that lane that emergency personnel can get through. And, you know, the whole system breaks down. That's kind of how I'm seeing what's happening as well. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a great analogy to describe how this corrosion happens. You know, few people get away with it at the beginning and then it turns into a flood. And if you want to, you know, actually be nice to some of the people who are following, you know, those cars that are going on the shoulder, I guess, in, in your analogy. I mean, they're they're basically looking at it and saying, well, if I don't do this, I'm disadvantaged. You know, so in the corporate setting. All of these, all these other companies against which we compete for capital are manipulating their financials and are playing this game. So, you know, we get we have a, we're saddled with a higher cost of capital if we don't do the same thing. Um, so I, it's just this is the problem when you when you let the environment corrode, when you don't insist on accountability. And that's just something that. Like we, you know, people in the markets in general haven't been insisting upon. And as I said, when you have the situation where a lot of it's legal, I mean, there's no role for the government there. It really rests. It's really incumbent on investors to insist on pure information. But you see each year in the debt markets, more and more covenant light or covenant less deals get done. And so investors really that's they're going in the complete opposite direction or they're, they're effectively saying, come on, you know, lie to me. Yeah, the the let me take another step back and uh, talk uh, just from a generic perspective about 
what that means from a zeitgeist perspective in terms of loss of faith in institutions. Because when I think of the dynamic that you're talking about, this is something that seems to have been playing out over the last week with this whole GameStop thing and Robin Hood and so forth, how people are just like, wait a minute, these guys, they're getting away with this stuff. Why aren't you letting us get away with it? And to me, I would say when I zoom out, I zoom out to the uh, financial crisis of 2008. Uh, I think of people, you know, losing their homes, people being evicted, uh, living in their cars, uh, losing their life savings, and their families now, 12 years later, saying, you know, we're not going to play that game where we're the patsy and, you know, the big guys get off with, you know, some fines, but no criminal convictions. All of the banks, none of them went under except for Lehman Brothers, and, and, and that's it. So what do you make of that in terms of how you're thinking just from a, I guess, uh, a philosophical perspective of how we got in the position where we are today? Well, yeah, um, the fact that there weren't senior people held accountable. Um, I mean, on one hand, you know, it's it's like bad judgment is not necessarily a crime. You can argue that there's lots of bad judgment. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, I'm a I'm a fan of Jesse Isinger's book, The Chicken Shit Club, and it's named that way because when Jim Comey um, Kate, uh, took over Southern District of New York when he was the U.S. attorney, he asked, um, I think, the criminal division attorneys, they had a weekly meeting and he and he asked them, OK, how many of you have never lost a case? And, you know, almost every hand went up in the room and he said, my friends and I have a name for you that you're the chicken shit club because you're afraid to take hard cases. So we know two things, okay? Well, we know three things. A lot of harm was done, obviously, I mean, to billions of people around the globe um, by the financial crisis, one. Two, there was a lot of just legitimately bad judgment or short-sighted judgment that wasn't criminal conduct. But three, there weren't attempts to prosecute whales here. And it's hard for me to believe, and it's hard for a lot of people to believe that the failure to even attempt um, is, you know, is, is fair. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, there, a lot of credibility was lost. And I mean, and you go, you lead up to it as well. I mean, you had all of these people, you know, who are PhDs in finance and economics saying, no, 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 derivatives are fine, you know, and Derate, they make the system safer and less risky and, you know, leverage, that's okay. You know, you're worried about things, you know, that, that's an old framework. And guess what? It's never really different this time. And so people who were, I mean, you could be a high school graduate only and keep that one phrase in your mind. It's never actually different and have known that this was all going to blow up. So really the question, you know, the question a lot of people asked is, well, what the fuck good are all of these PhDs in finance and economics if they can't foresee this? And that's a fair question. And we still today don't have an answer. And, you know, I think all of this is the backdrop to uh, what I would consider a somewhat chaotic week uh, last week. And there's still a certain degree of chaos that's occurring right now. Um Talk to me about how you're looking at the GME, that's the GameStop, and the AMC uh, debacle last week, 
both in terms of the market action, but also in terms of the regulatory and the market plumbing behind that that created the environment. Right. So let's start with um, there was some bad risk management by at least one hedge fund. Okay. Too big. I mean, they know it. I'm, I don't think this is kicking them when they're down, but you know, Melvin obviously messed that up. Actually, very smart um, analysis on the front end of this, understanding the technicals, understanding why it could squeeze. And there was also a legitimate uh, argument about what's GameStop really worth. You had Ryan Cohen uh, from Chewy's take a major stake in it. You had Michael Burry take a stake in it. So there was this view on that side that, hey, this thing has value, it's not done. And then there was the view on the short side that it is done. But um, so what initially what started as a smart trade by retail, and what's interesting about that is it was a democratization of this squeeze tactic that, I mean, some hedge funds or you know, groups of hedge funds seem to employ from time to time. So retail got hip to it and they squeezed the stock. But then there was this, you know, then when it became clear Melvin is experiencing some major pain, um, Andrew left of Citron, obviously, wasn't loving, wasn't loving life at that point. Then there was this bloodlust that came about. And so the narrative there initially was, OK, this is the retail investor saying, you know, we're rebelling against Wall Street. We're tired of Wall Street screwing us. And maybe, look, I, I don't know the psychology of the people on Wall Street bets. I mean, I only went to that Reddit page for the first time in my life two weeks ago. But I don't entirely buy the narrative. I think we are all angry. I mean, just especially because of COVID. Like, there's just so much anger. And really, I think a lot of us do want to break something if given the opportunity. And... Um, so I think that that's kind of what took over. But then it seems like it actually stopped being a retail trade so much and it was more institutional. So there are some people who posted from last Tuesday and Wednesday, they show that Robinhood was net sellers of GME as opposed to buyers, yet the stock went up. Um, so that was probably, it was indicative that likely this is institutional. And we see now the stories of the institutions that have made some really good money um, on what happened in GME and also AMC. Um, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, I didn't really see much, but I do think there is, you know, maybe if there's going to be focus um, on some people. I mean, there were some high-profile people like uh, Chamath, Dave Portnoy, who exhorted people to go into this. Um, I don't know that there was anything wrong with that, but you know, I could expect them to. Uh, look, they might, they might have some, they might have some questions to answer just because there's so much political heat around this now, and that's the part that I know is kind of problematic because I've seen a number of politicians um, tweeting or read their statements indicating, you know, they're really upset and want to do something about this, but not only do they not understand what's going on, I don't even think they know what this is. Like, what's the problematic part here? You know, a hedge fund getting blown up? None of the, you know, I'm sure none of these politicians will say that's problematic. Um, the fact that a bunch of people made money on the way up? Eh, it's hard to go after that. The fact that they're losing money on the way down? Maybe, 
But um, it's going to be a political clusterfuck, unfortunately. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What do you think of uh, just from the market plumbing perspective? I think I saw a note where uh, they were say a source close to the National Securities Clearing Corporation said there were no negotiations. They, you know, at seven a.m. Uh, Eastern time, which is four p.m. or four a.m. your time, basically they decided, you know what, uh, the the vol in these names is so high, we're going to ask these guys to post up a ridiculous amount of collateral. And that's what, you know, turned the whole thing around and it metastasized into a massive, uh, you know, own goal for the uh, Robin Hood in particular. How do you see that and what's the what's the solve for that problem? Well, again, we're talking narratives. That's a good narrative, but I don't think that's accurate. Um, mm. So, again, go back to number one, retail looks like they were net selling even prior to that. So it would have been more institutional getting burned on that. But um, it wasn't only Robinhood. Okay, so if you take a step back, DTCC, they, I mean, they didn't know how to manage this risk as a clearing corp because of two, because of T plus two settlement. And because like you said, the vol blew out. I mean, vol on some of these options that I saw was a thousand percent. And one of our counterparties, which also, restricted and prohibited, um, well, prohibited adding to those names or initiating new positions in those names and is not Robin Hood. It's an institutional firm. One of them said, yeah, risk models. I mean, when you get a stock with 500 percent implied volatility, like our models can't process that. So DTCC, they're freaking out because they, they don't know how to deal with this. They did what they needed to do. And it wasn't only Robin Hood. We had at least three counterparties, three of our counterparties put, you know, halts on that trading because they don't want to tie up capital posting collateral for this either. So it, it became a victim of its own success, this trade in a way. I mean, the other thing that happened as well, and, I, and I'm not sure that it's accurate to say, well, that's why the trade fell apart. But you also had these, these options dealers who finally said, hey, I, like, I'm not going to lose any more money. Um, on the gamma here, like I, you know, I'm. They jacked up their their prices at which they were selling these call options. So suddenly, these call options became incredibly cost prohibitive. So if you're a retail punter thinking like, okay, I'm going to buy these out of the money calls and try to squeeze stuff higher, well, you know, like fifty dollars for a call that's going to expire in a week and a half and is at the money, it's like a lot to you know to punt on it. So I think that it also ran headlong into that, but. There's one other comment that I want to make, and this is something I was thinking about last night. Now, I, I really know very little about the plumbing, but you know, since this happens, you have all these people, you know, and even some market commentators, you know, who write frequently whose opinions I respect. You know, they've talked about our antiquated settlement system, you know, and, and other people, of course, are like, you know, barfing out like blockchain. You know, if it's on the blockchain, it'll you know magically be better. I mean, here's the thing. It works. I mean, the settlement system works. And when you think about 
how much, I mean, it's, it's in the trillions of dollars a day, I think, are traded, probably, or close to it, especially when stuff gets really active. I mean, the fact that we're able, you know, DTCC is able to keep track of who had these shares, you know, for these few seconds, and then who owned them for that microsecond, and then who bought them, and is still holding them, and reconcile all of this. I mean, that's an incredibly complex system. So this call for like, oh, we need to rip this stuff out and replace it with blockchain or something modern. It's like, I don't know, man, like there could be a lot of unintended consequences from that, because like I said, this system works. And if the cost of it working when something goes parabolic is brokers having to post more collateral, I would rather take that than a system that might break down. And if, you know, if the settlement system underlying the U.S. markets ever broke down and they couldn't figure out who owned what or owed what, I mean, holy shit, like that would be the calamity. Yeah, uh, very well said. And, you know, from your perspective in terms of this GME, uh, GameStop thing, my question to you as someone who's looking at short selling, what, what kind of size of company uh, are you talking about? You earlier talked about these billion dollar companies with, you know, who were uh, taking 30 or 40 intellectual fraud or actually outright fraud. Where are we now in terms of, you know, where it pays? Because obviously, on the one hand, risk management wise, it may not have been a good deal uh, for Melvin here, but uh, if you manage your risk, could you take on a, a, a uh, you know a company of this size? Where are you looking? I mean, our sweet spot has generally been in the two to five billion market cap range. But now, um, especially when you look at some of these SPACs that are complete jokes, I mean, these things are coming in at seven, eight billion in market cap. Um, and you know, look, sometimes we we have been you know higher than that. But um, when we look at when we look at how to size a position, I mean, we look at the the trading volume, so the average daily volume. And you know, you can't be too large relative to the average daily volume. I think Melvin was, if I remember correctly, they were about six days average volume at one point. Um, you know, and I say at one point because the average volume you know, skyrocketed as the stock started going up. But going into that, I mean, that's, you know, you don't ever want to be that big because you figure if you're trading out at 20% of volume, all right, like, first of all, if you go to, if you go to a broker and say, okay, you know, buy blah shares, you know, uh, max, you know, limit this, uh, max 20% of volume, all, right, all the HFTs are going to sniff that out and know that you're a buyer, you know, if you're doing 20%. So doing 20%, you're going to probably move the stock some, I mean, disadvantage yourself because the HFTs are trading in front of you, but it's doable. So if you were a day of average volume in your short, you know, you would take about five days, you know, a typical day to get out of that short, um, and you would be losing some money uh, pushing it. So if you think that you're six days, I mean, man, you're just way too big. So um, we look at the average daily volume, and then also we look at the utilization of the borrow. Um, I mean, we want to know. And another thing when we're dealing with our counterparties is we want to understand that borrow. So we'll ask them, is this stable or, you know, are they kind of scrapping it together from different lenders? And, you know, we have to, we certainly have to factor that into our sizing decisions is the stability of the borrow. You know, uh, in terms of 
companies that you're looking for, the first thing that I, that comes to mind is this whole uh, John Kenneth Galbraith uh, concept of the bezel. Um, you know, I want to go back to what you were saying about uh, where we are systemically. Um, so, you know, John Kenneth Galbraith, he was saying, you know, this is the great crash of 29. He was saying that there's always, you know, at least uh, now you're saying also intellectually, but just generically speaking, a, a embezzlement that's happening. It's, it's so-called the bezel. And the bezel increase. we don't see the bezel. It's there. It's It has to be uncovered. So I, my general question is, is that, you know, when the tide goes out, obviously that's when you see the bezel. But there's a process associated with the tide going out so you can see the bezel. Where are we in terms of that going out? And what's your process in terms of making that known? Uh, well, where we are is difficult to say because um, you can look at lots of different factors. So even late last year, before this latest insanity, I was saying that retail investor behavior and attitude reminds me a lot of 1999. You know, just, I mean, such a speculative mania. So you wonder, can that continue? Well, on the other hand, we're not going to see monetary tightening anytime soon. We're going to see more stimulus, so probably more stimmies thrown into uh, the Robinhood accounts, uh, which can push stuff higher. Um, but on the other hand, the markets are also much more fragile. And this is something that I think really needs to get a lot more discussion. And that is the, the single biggest factor that makes the markets much more fragile today than they used to be in 99, 2000 is the prevalence of passive investing. You know, I'm not against passive investing per se, but when passive gets to be such a large part of the market, um, it's effectively you know, shrinking the float. And so there, it replaces, you know, passive squeezes out active managers. So if here are the outstanding shares, here's the float. Well, now if passive is, if passive is this and it's continuing to get flows, it's going to pay up each day to, in order to buy stock from a decreasing number of active managers. So if you are active investors, so if active investors end up being this um, at the end of some period, when there are outflows from passive and passive must sell, who is left to buy, you know, when there's this wall of shares that must be sold. And that's what makes markets much more fragile. And I think that was the dynamic that played out in March of last year in the equity markets was all of this supply because we were in this massive risk off moment, passive had outflows and it's just not enough active left. So that, you know, there, there's an equilibrium or maybe there's a tipping point, you know, at which passive becomes too, too prevalent. And that's when we get a market that's really driven more by technical analysis than fundamental analysis. That's more about questions such as you know, which, you know, when will this company get added to what index and how popular are those index tracking funds versus how well will this company grow you know how well will it take the capital that it's raised and grow its business and and create value um and that's a problem like at this at this point the markets aren't doing what they're here for but doesn't that create a problem for you therefore when we're talking about companies that, uh have difficulties in terms of their intellectual fraud 
really the ability to uncover that fraud either through your research, uh, getting people to start thinking about the questions that they have or other mechanisms, that's just, that's short-circuited because you have this massive amount of momentum trading that's happening purely from a technical basis. Yeah, I mean, it's, look, one of the adjustments we have to make is we have to stay away from companies that have a significant amount of passive in the shareholder base. So good example um, is a biotech company called Inovio. We were short that earlier last year. We didn't publish a report. I put out a series of tweets on it though. Um, I mean, this is a company that's been around, I think uh, about 35 years, between 30 and 35 years, has commercialized all of zero. And every time there's a new illness that captures the public's imagination, Ebola, Zika, COVID, they announced, you know, that they're working on the cure of the vaccine. And again, they've done fuck all, you know, for all these years. So um, we were short it last year because we said, hey, you know, they put out their COVID hype release. And but the thing is, they're in litigation with their contract manufacturer. Their contract manufacturer is not going to make this for them. And they and Inovio's claiming in court, well, you know, your honor, you should uh, tear up the IPR protections here because we cannot have this manufactured anywhere else because they're the ones with the technology. And so we thought, okay, well, that should completely nullify, you know, any hope that these guys are going to be like anywhere in this COVID race. Um, of course, that's putting aside the whole question of how profitable will a COVID vaccine actually be. But um, yeah, I mean, but I look at it today. I mean, the stock went up after we, you know, shorted it, of course, came back down. But now uh, I just look, I pulled up the shareholder table earlier today. And as of the end of September, um, I hadn't I hadn't caught this. But the top three holders, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street. I mean, what the fuck? Like, it's just it's and that's and that's the and that's what's holding the stock up right now. I mean, it's just it's just a joke of a biotech company. But, you know, I mean, if we really want to talk dysfunction and jokes, I mean, biotech has a whole universe of companies that are never going to do anything uh, other than sell stock um, and have managements that sell stock. But yeah, uh, that's kind of, you know, that's that's one of the things we have to avoid, that like we would not short Inobio now with that much passive ownership um, at the top of the shareholder table. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Right. Now, I was talking to you before we got onto this. Uh, I wanted you to take me through uh, American Tower because I know that you mentioned that before and you were saying that, you know, this is a company, you know, we did the research. Uh, definitely, we, you know, I stand behind the research, but, you know, hey, uh, the, 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 it, didn't, it didn't fall the way that we wanted to. Maybe uh, an exposition like that will sort of give the viewers understanding of, um, you know, what the intricacies are of, under, you know, when do you, when do you get out of these positions? Yeah, well, American Tower, um, that was the 2013 um, campaign that we began. And 
I mean, yeah, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I used to say that that was the best research we'd ever done. Um, and the reason for that was, I mean, we, we had, we did real hard hitting on the ground research in Brazil, in Colombia, in India, in Tanzania, in Germany. I mean, we, you know, I thought we unraveled that the whole uh, secret to their, you know, international growth strategy was really just running a levered carry trade, you know, borrowing in a cheap currency, USD, and going long fixed assets in Tanzania. I mean, and also Ghana. I mean, the Ghanaian sovereign at that time was yielding over 20%. So we're looking at it and be like, dude, these IRRs, okay, they're not that great. Like you could get the same IRRs or higher by going long the local sovereign. And by the way, it's not a fixed asset that, you know, if it gets destroyed or expropriated, you're screwed. So, um, you know, I thought that was one of the, one of the things that we did that was really impressive. The other thing though, that, um, I really, you know, the, to me, the thing that was really profound was there was a problem. They had bought a, a tower portfolio in Brazil from a seller called site sharing. Now they had not disclosed the name of the seller. We figured that out. Um, that transaction, I, from memory here, I think they said that they paid 500 million US for that transaction, for the tower portfolio. The real price that was received by the seller was only about 250 million. So there was 250 million that, where did that go? And I mean, that, you know, would, you know, that is fraud in the financial statements. But, um, you know, a few things, few things went wrong with that, uh, with that campaign. Um, we were massively front and on that. We had, that's one of the risks in, in our business is security leaks. And so we had, we had at that time a major security leak. And I should have seen it going into the release because there was just a huge amount of uh, short dated put buying. And that was not, we were not the ones buying those puts. I, I was just so focused on the research. And, you know, one of the comments that I've been making a lot to media lately about GameStop is talking about how we hired a full-time trader just this past year because of the, how the markets have become. I mean, back in 2013, I mean, we just really were not sophisticated with our trading. So we so we were front run uh, by people who had in, misappropriated the, the, our information and that we were going to be doing this. And so they had a bunch of puts outstanding. As soon as we uh, went public with the report, the stock dipped for a moment and then came right back as they were selling the puts and market makers are taking off the delta, putting a floor under it. Now, why is that important to how things play out? If a company, if the shareholders aren't screaming at the end of day one, it's a lot easier for companies to get through this without bringing in investigators and without the SEC also taking a look. Like the SEC only cares when something goes wrong with the stock generally. So, um, so that, that helped them out as well. But one of the other things that I learned from that experience and some others, well, there were two other things there. I mean, we took everything that we, you know, had gathered about that company, including critiques of the tower model, you know, outside of the international, but just saying, Hey, the tower is not unassailable. These are technological threats. And we put it out there and that was a mistake. I mean, we threw too many other arguments that, by kitchen sinking it. You know, we lost credibility, I think, with investors who had different views on the state of the tower and they weren't going to take 
the arguments, the other arguments as seriously. So that was that was a learning experience for us in that regard. But um, the other thing is, I, you know, American Tower was priced for perfection. And that was part of our view. We weren't saying it was the worst company ever. We're saying it's 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 perceived as perfect. It's really actually pretty mediocre and hairy, but we're not saying it's awful. And, um, you know, I looking back, um, most most of what we do is take companies that are perceived as mediocre and having and have some hair. And we say, no, they're actually awful. Um, but I think when we say companies that are perceived as perfect, but are really mediocre and hairy, those theses just don't really move the needle. Now, of course, the best in my business is a Sino Forest or Burford Capital, which was one in the UK where it's perceived to be, you know, a great company and it's really an awful company. So, um, but I mean, those don't come along every day, but yeah, I mean, three years into being an activist short seller, uh, American Tower was a learning experience for us. And, um, you know, I really, it's a shame that nobody ever found the $250 million. It's, uh, you know, wish some of it had landed in my lap. That didn't happen. <laughs> Well, you know, um, I I want to end this uh, because, you know, I told you before that I wasn't going to talk about uh, Zero's TV, but actually I do want to talk about it because what it made, you, you said one or two things there that made me think about it. You were talking about the SEC doesn't care unless bad things happen. And so what I was thinking about is I was thinking about your process and how that works because you're only one piece of the puzzle in terms of uncovering that actually this company says that it's it's incredible. People think it's incredible, but actually it's not. Uh, and there's a whole process by which that happens, where you're sort of the uh, you know the the spearhead to uh, the discovery of that. Where does Zeros TV, which by the way my colleagues at RVCS are helping you with, where does that? land you in terms of making that process happen? And and before you even answer, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, who else needs to be involved in terms of uncovering things in order for a, a intellectual or actual financial fraud to be uncovered? Okay. So let me talk first about just some of the process. I mean, it's, um, it's not rocket science, but it's just a lot of time and effort. Um, so, for example, what we did, if we take American Tower, um, we looked at, we just made a, we just made a chart of the, the price per tower that American Tower was paying in different countries. And that one portfolio acquisition really jumped, you know, I mean, it was just an outlier. So, okay, from whom did they acquire that? Company didn't disclose it. Um, I think we had a conversation with IR and they didn't or wouldn't say. Well, so then we hired some, we hired a lawyer in Brazil or engaged a lawyer in Brazil and also some investigators, and they made in inquiries at uh, Anatel. I think that's the name of the Brazilian regulator. Oh, yeah, that was this company called Site Sharing. All right, pull up, we can get the financials. I mean, a lot of jurisdictions around the world, um, even private companies are, privately owned companies are required to fire, file financials and shareholder registries. So we pulled the financials. We're like, how the hell was this thing, you know, 500, you know, $500 million or whatever, whatever it was. Um, and so then we, we had our, our lawyer and investigators asking around at Anatel and we talked to people in the industry and it was, um, the, the acquisition price was done on a, uh, they, they talk about price per tower. 
So I think the issue was, you know, where this got doubled was um, it was the price per tower that everybody believed um, site sharing received, if I remember correctly, was 600,000 rei per tower. But what was reported was 600,000 USD per tower. So that was how that money was paid, was peeled off, was changing rei to dollars. So we had conversations with people in the industry and everybody's saying like, I have 600,000 rei, everybody knows that. Some people were aware that it had been reported differently. Um, and they said, yeah, I, I don't know what the deal is there. Others were, were really surprised to hear that. We then um, had somebody go undercover and um, he posed as a potential private equity investor, met with the uh, former controlling shareholder of site sharing um, and got the guy talking about the transaction. He's like, yeah, it was 600,000 riyadh. Yeah, I know they reported $600,000, you know, and then uh, he made some comment like, I don't know, maybe some, you know, investigators can go find where that money went. Um, so we had that. And then in the rest for the for a lot of the rest of the work, you know, we were talking to local, uh, I mean, people around the world in, or where, you know, where American Tower had gone in those markets, understanding how the tower business worked. And so, you know, what we one of the, th the things that we also unearthed about American Tower was um, these agreements had a finite length. And that likely when they were renewed, there was going to be a real decrease in the rents. And so there was like a, a cliff for, you know, these great IRRs that they were generating. And so those were details that we unearthed. And um, yeah, and we just and we were able to get real unit level economics by hiring lawyers and investigators locally to understand what the markets were. And we built these models that for each market that just showed that these unit economics were you know, they weren't really that great and they had real sun, they had real sunsets to them. So um, that's how we do it. A lot of it's just pulling these local filings, talking to people locally in the industry and um, and going from there. And and what's the what's the end game in terms of how does that work? That's what I'm most interested in. Uh, uh, this, you know, obviously the stock has some reaction to the portfolio but to me the understanding is 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 that the way it really works is, is that it then therefore causes a re uh reassessment mentally of a whole different host of people about that company and what they've been doing so yeah okay that yeah great great question so the way that i think of short activism um is i mean what we're doing is we take most of what we know and we put it out there up front you know, so it's not like long side activism, which really has a scenario analysis to it, you know, and it's an ongoing chess match and it's it's a finesse game. Short activism really is a power game. And we're trying to knock over as many dominoes as we can in the first instance. You know, we have some ammunition and especially if a company comes back and lies, that's very helpful usually to our cause because we can, you know, then turn that around on them. But the goal is to create a lot of scrutiny on the company from investors from outside board members, from regulators, from the auditor, counterparties maybe. And with, with all this scrutiny, it creates a highly pressurized environment in the company. Now, here's where we're at a disadvantage, because from the outside, we can't see whether things are breaking and what is breaking. But if we succeed, it's because this pressurized environment is causing things to break. And so that's when you get CEO or CFO resignation or... Um, a regulatory investigation back when those, you know, actually meant something. 
um, <laughs> you know, or or auditors resigning and things. You know, there. So that's how we succeed over the medium to long term. But it's very difficult to see from the outside whether we're succeeding. I mean, there have been a number of times when companies have succeeded in yoking their stock prices back up, and we're thinking like, fuck. And then it's like they report. And I mean, the big the big thing that often happens is they have to dial back the aggressive behavior, especially if it's a, you know, one of the legal frauds, you know, the intellectually fraudulent. Um, they dial back the aggressive behavior and they just can't put the numbers up that they were supposed to put up. And so then it's and that's that's when we win. Um, and we win. You know, I feel like we've historically won over the long term most of the time. But. You know, there are sometimes we really get our asses kicked hard, like AMT. So um, if I knew at the beginning which ones we'd win and which ones we wouldn't, we would only do winners, of course. <laughs> but um, that's how it goes. A very, uh, very informative conversation, Carson. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us about GME and also about short selling in general. So uh, hats off to you and uh, thanks again. Cool. Thanks a lot, Ed. Enjoyed it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.